0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Tuesday, May the 29th. 2022, and we are continuing our five-part, could become a six-part, but five-part series on permaculture design, and permaculture is a design science today, and this will be another one that if you really want to get all of it, you might want to go look at the video version, or at least go grab the PowerPoint deck from the show notes, which I've included as a PDF. This one's a pretty big PDF. It's very photograph-centric, so you might want to right-click, save, as you might wait a while otherwise for it to load in your browser. Anyway, uh, we're going to talk today about agriculture versus holder culture, the concept of hill people versus city people, and it's not really an adversarial relationship. It just is a way that we can think of how humans view nature differently. We're going to talk about the concept of liberation permaculture, which I believe was pioneered by my, my late great friend uh, Toby Hemingway. And then we're going to go into how we design a property like a hunter-gatherer in our backyard, even if it's a small property. A property that we can wander through and take little bits here and there from and never run out. And actually practice permaculture the way that our ancestors did before anybody knew of the word or probably even the concept as a single thing. Before we do that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Start9 Embassy Servers. Look, everything you do online is tracked. And worse, Everything you do online that you don't have on your own computer, that you go online to access, they call it the cloud. There's no cloud. There's no such thing as a cloud. All there is is space on somebody else's computer. You want to take complete control of that, you want to go to Start9.com, get set up with an MVC server, do the little bit of work it takes to figure out how to integrate it into your life, and take back control of your data and your privacy all in one place. And if you're an MSB member... The discount you get on a Start Nine Embassy will more than cover your MSB for multiple years. So they are a great supporter of the show. Next up today, the Wealth Studding Podcast. You know, I'm not going to really use the word wealth today, I think, in this presentation at all. But thinking back on it, I should have. Because what we're talking about is building true wealth. When you build a property that can sustain you and your family and will be here after you're gone and still do that, It's a form of wealth building. There's lots of forms of wealth building, and John Pugliano is familiar with all of them. He is a financial manager, and he does a great job of that. But he's one of us, too. He's been part of this community since 2010. He is a prepper. He is a ham radio operator. He is a firearms enthusiast. And he knows his stuff about building wealth. You can learn more about him and his work and his advice on the Wealth Steading Podcast, and you'll find that of course at wealthsteading.com. And remember, John's also a member of our expert council. So if you have questions, get them sent to me in an email, TSPC expert in a subject line. Give me your questions. And John answers questions pretty much on a weekly basis for this audience as well. So check him out guys. You're really gonna if you've never listened to the Wealth Steading Podcast, give it a listen. I think you'll really enjoy it. Next up, before we dive into this presentation delay, let me remind you There are some ways you can help support the show and the work that we do. One way you can support our show and our work is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Go there whenever you shop online, no matter what you buy. You'll help support the show and the work that we do. The item of the day I have for you today, I've brought it to you many times. I bring it back every time it's in stock again. It's a Turkish folding pruning and grape and berry knife. It's like a little rice knife, sickle saw type thing that folds up like a big pocket knife. And I love it. It is the single most versatile tool I use in my gardening and my permaculture stuff. It is it is fantastic. I won't belabor it. I have a great video in the write-up on it you can check out. But there's only one source of these that I know of. And I learned about this from a member of the community. Somebody said, hey, check this out. I went and got one. I'm like, oh, hell yeah, I'm recommending it. They sold out almost instantly. Every time I run these things, they sell out within a few days and then they come back in. Again, one supplier. I've looked. I can't find any other source of them in the United States. They're about 20 bucks because they fold up. You can put them in your pocket. You don't cut yourself like a rice knife. You don't leave it laying out. It's an awesome tool, and you want it to be part of your permaculture toolkit. Next up, remember, I have the Member Support Brigade on sale. It is $35 a year for the next couple days. Today's the 29th, so you got two more days. And it's going to go back to regular price, and I did this for a month plus, so I won't be doing it again for a very, very long time. If you want to get in on that sale, join the MSB today. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. Just put forward slash members. Oh, and remember, if you don't feel like typing out thesurvivalpodcast.com, we have a short URL, tspc.co, tspc.co, and we have quite a few short domains. We have that one that goes to the main site. We have spaz where you can support us online, and we have tspclive.com. What's that all about? That's an easy to remember URL. You can always find the next upcoming live stream so you can be part of the live stream that we're about to drop into today. One little heads up, there's a point where I edit some stuff out. There's basically a video that I show during this presentation. There's no talking in it. It's all music. I figured that would be terrible for audio, so I removed it. I will put a link to the whole video production, but I will also include a link in the show notes today to just the video of the five-minute walk through my permaculture property. With that, let's drop on into the live stream. And uh, maybe we can get back to this. All right. So that should stop that. Anyway, we are going to be discussing permaculture today. This is part four of our series on permaculture as a design science. Um, we're going to take a bit of a turn today away from what most permaculture teachers teach. Uh, most permaculture teachers come at especially a course, which is basically what this is. This is basically a free introductory course into permaculture. They come at it almost strictly from the curriculum that's based on the Permaculture Designer's Manual. They're either teaching a PDC or a part of a PDC, and I'd like to believe by the time we get done with this, this is a, this, this introductory course is a good portion of a PDC. It's not everything, but it's what you need to understand it. But what I'm going to be teaching you mostly today uh, stems from my own work, uh, interactions with people that I've worked with directly that may or may not even call themselves permaculturists, uh, backyard horticulturists, who have taken a totally different approach to producing their own food uh, than having your conventional small farm. Uh, many gardens essentially are small farms. We have a row of beans, we have a row of tomatoes, we have a row of peppers. And I'm not opposed to that, and I even do some of that. But I take a much more broad approach. Today what we're actually going to talk about primarily is the concept of developing your property into something akin to what a modern hunter-gatherer would have. So we'll get more into that when we get into it. I just want to kind of set the stage for what we're doing today being a little bit different. I'll also tell you if you have questions during this presentation and you are in the live chat please put them in all caps at least first couple words for me so that i recognize them and i will star them i will also say this these episodes on permaculture i'm putting so much effort and time into them that they go pretty long so if you ask me a question today that has nothing to do with the material i'm covering today i'm not going to beat you up for it i'm just when i go to answer them i am not going to uh i'm not going to to respond to it so I do have somebody telling me the stream's down. I'd love to hear from other people out there. Maybe it's just an individual. Uh, that person is on Twitch, and I don't know how I'm seeing you if my stream's down. But it looks like we're we're doing well. I've got check marks across the board on everything but Rumble, and we uh, we just turned Rumble off today. All right. With that, let's... Uh, and it looks like I'm on Goose YouTube, which I didn't intend to do, but so be it. That was a mistake. Anyway, um, so here we go. Uh, let's dig on into this today. And uh, sorry for the disruptions there. Sometimes when people are telling me things, it is a bit distracting, and I'm worried about whether we're getting through to people or not. Anyway, today's episode, again, Permaculture Design Science, Part 4. We're going to talk about going at this from the standpoint of building a property in the eyes and through the lens of a hunter-gatherer, which I think is a very natural state for human beings. And so, I'm going to start off coming at you with a quote by Bill Mollison, and then a differential between horticulture and agriculture, and then a little bit about the work of my late dear friend Toby Hemingway, who was one of the best friends I ever made in my life. Maybe I'll even tell you the story about how we met if you haven't heard it yet. And then we're going to go into my kind of design principles on my property that I use to live out this modern hunter gatherer lifestyle. And what I want to start out with is a lot of times when we talk about permaculture, people look at this and they say to themselves or they say to you, it can't be that easy. It can't be that simple. It it, it can't be. Because if it was, then everybody would do it. And the problem is we have been disconnected from our own human nature. We did all do it one way or another, for the vast majority of the existence of hominids that stood upright and walked, i.e. humans, um, Homo sapien, and maybe maybe even our other relatives like Cro-Magnon Man and stuff like that, way, way, way back, hundreds of thousands of years ago. This is how we lived. We did not have chemical fertilizers until around World War I. We did not have anything akin to a mechanized plow until the mid to late 1800s and those were even pretty weak compared to what we have today. Uh, or even what we had in 1920. And until the Fordson tractor and the ability to start it by smacking a 12 gauge blank and make its motor turnover came around, we were very limited in what we could do as an agricultural species. It had to be done mostly with some form or other of slave labor, which itself is inherently limited. We we think of just driving slaves till they drop, but if you do that, it's just like you know animals. If you push animals till they die, you have none left. So I'm not saying it's okay or that there's benevolent slavery. I don't mean that at all. I just mean that there's a fundamental energetic limit to what we can do. So it is actually simple. And the only reason we don't think that it's simple is because we have disconnected from this reality. So when Bill Mollison stated very famously one time, though the problems of the world are increasingly complex, the solutions remain embarrassingly simple, he wasn't kidding around. It is embarrassingly simple. But before we go into digging into this today, I want to explain something about that. Simple and easy are not the same thing. Simple is something that is easy to define, and the actual act of doing it is not hard. It is in, the steps are known, the technology exists, and we can do it. Easy is where we don't really have to try. Easy as water rolling down a hill. If you dump a bucket of water, everything after that happens by itself. Okay? That's easy. And we have various impediments to these simple solutions. The primary one is government. Now, I don't believe in bringing my politics into permaculture, but we are going to talk about some level of governmental and societal conditioning of human beings today and some level of regulation, just very short at the beginning, Because you can't understand this quote, and that's the only reason I'm doing it. You can't understand this quote and its true significance if you don't understand that. In other words, if you decide you have some wonderful permaculture vision, and let's say that it's something that you want to build and do in an urban area, you're going to find two problems, two main problems to doing it, because the the actual act is simple. If you're going to put a two-acre food forest in the middle of a town, the, 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 the steps are, one, find a suitable site, two, obtain access to the site, three, install the food forest. And there's a lot of techniques, like we've talked about in the last episode, that would go into the implementation of a food forest, but it is that straightforward simple. What you're going to run into, though, is a whole bunch of regulations, which are massive restrictions upon design, or even the ability to begin a design. And you'll find over and over and over again, in the realm of permaculture, so many of the things that we could do, very simply, are not easy because of restrictions of either societal bias or governmental regulation or a combination thereof, and also of a willful ignorance of society and a fundamental dumbing down of society by people in power. And, and, and from there, I want to kind of go into the difference between horticulture and agriculture. And what you're seeing on the screen right now, if you're you're watching the video, is, and we'll see a very similar shot to this later, uh, with a monoculture versus a polyculture slide. But this very much should show you the difference between the concept of horticulture and agriculture. Agriculture really is the culture of fields. Agriculture is where we take a field and we kill every living thing in it, except the one thing, or even several things that we want to grow. And everything is done to the aim of advantaging that one or two or three, even four species. We could have a farm that's very much an agricultural farm, and maybe it's four 40 acre plots. It's a 160 acre farm, typical square uh, up in Oklahoma that you might buy for farming. And it could be a quarter beans, a quarter wheat, a quarter, you know, barley. Uh, and, and a, a quarter sugar beets. It's still agriculture. It still looks a lot like the picture that's on your right. Horticulture is the culture of plants. That means that we as humans realize this plant might do really well here, or this plant is advantageous to us. This plant should be cared for. This plant should be observed. This plant maybe should be propagated. Maybe we should clear a little bit of the area around this this very valuable plant to us so that it can spread out a little bit and maintain it. The Native Americans did a lot of this. They did agriculture, but a lot of them also did horticulture. And a lot of the horticulture that we observed uh, in the early days of colonialization was actually a result of many of their civilizations that were built on agriculture being destroyed by diseases we brought here. Now, this is not social politics or anything. This is just what happened. Uh, um, one group of humans that carried viruses that another group of humans were not resistant to showed up, and it had a devastating effect across the continent. And it, 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 it took away the mass amount, especially in the southeast and south central states. It took away, and when I say central, I mean north to south central. So you we were talking Virginia down to Florida and over in Alabama, those Native Americans were very much in a hierarchical structure. Uh, everything the TV tells you about the native na- you know the, the, the noble Native Americans doesn 't really apply to the civilizations that existed during the early uh, Spanish exploration of that area. These were uh, monarchies in general small uh, city state monarchies with kings and slaves and all of that jazz and uh, when, when we came here and that got devastated, the remnant that survived took far more largely toward horticulture where they were using controlled burns. Uh, we, we, we looked and we saw nothing but forest, but they were massive horticultural systems. And some of these systems are only breaking down today, even though the humans that maintain them have been gone for hundreds of years uh, they're, an example of this west coast parts of California, one of the uh, horticultural staples of the peoples out there was the manzanita, which basically means tiny apple. And they're not really an apple, but they're kind of like an apple, so that's what they get called. Um, the native peoples uh, of the area really encouraged the growth of this plant. And that is horticultural. And they gathered it in a hunter-gatherer style. So they looked like, to somebody that didn't understand the system, they were just wandering through, picking whatever was available, but there wasn't an understanding that through use of fire and clearing and encouragement that they actually created their own environment to wander through, to hunt and gather in. And this was done from coast to coast, north to south, all across the continent in various different ways. And that's horticulture. And that's what I'm talking about building in your backyard today. And so when I say to be a hunter-gatherer, that's what I'm actually talking about. I'm not talking about, well, we'll get to it. And then I also want you to think about something else. There's a there's an ancient divide in humanity. It's less evident today, but it's still evident. The hill people versus the city people. And it, what it's really about is the wilderness people... Versus the field people. It doesn't, like a lot of places that exist, it's the hills where we don't have agriculture, though we've, we've shown you previously that you can do it. But in general, in most places, if there's enough land that's that's arable and flat, humans farm flatland because it's easy. There's usually rivers there, and we can put a pump in the river, and we can irrigate. We can put in all sorts of systems of controls and canals that bring water to the plants. And it's flat, so you take a plow, even an old plow pulled by an oxen or a horse, and it's relatively easy compared to farming up in the mountains. And so the people on the flatlands generally are city people. Now, if we go back far enough in time, we're talking more like large village people, right? Not the ones that dance around dressed up like cops and Indians, people that live in villages. And then the people that lived up in the in, in the in the hills were more typically hunter-gatherer types. They were people that didn't see the deer as a bad thing. So if we plant a cornfield and deer show up, and our aim and our yield that we see is corn, the deer is bad. The deer is the enemy. If we live in the forest and we do horticulture... And some of our horticulture is taken by the deer or the squirrels, but we also, with a bow or a rifle, take deer and squirrel as a meat yield. The deer is no longer our enemy. He is our brother. He is, he is someone whose blood we will spill to feed our family, but only enough to do so. Because we follow the ethics, right? Right? Setting limits to population and consumption, i.e. return of surplus, the third ethic. No matter how you state it, it results in that. I can only take out a certain amount. I have to leave a surplus behind. So when we go into agriculture, when we go into flatlands, nature is our enemy. When we do horticulture, when we think like hill people, we think like wilderness people, we think like hunter-gatherers, nature is our ally. It doesn't mean that na- everything nature does works well for us. It doesn't mean we have to channel certain things and control certain things and maybe limit edge to limit production of certain things. You want to have a weed problem? Build your raised bed garden with rocks. All those little edges will create massive microspaces for weeds to grow. Right? So we might have to do some things to limit nature's production or to channel nature's production, but nature's not the enemy. It's a force to harness. It is It is an energy to direct and that's the big difference here. So this is not the the city people are the enemy. This is the difference in mentality of modern thinking of agriculture versus traditional human values. And this leads us to liberation permaculture. I mentioned Toby earlier. This is Toby Hemingway. Toby was one of my greatest mentors. And I will tell you quickly the story of how we met. I didn't know Toby well, and he was very much kind of like this tweed jacket wearing seemed like a Harvard professor type guy and he seemed very much in the bent toward like the purple side of permaculture at least from the outside looking in though i uh, though i i i did not really think that having read his book guy's garden which is one of the best entry-level permaculture books you can get your hands on. I will try to add that, plus some episodes I did with Toby, to the show notes for you today on the audio side, in the link that's below the video. You can check that after the live stream ends, about an hour after the live stream ends. But he came up with this term, liberation permaculture. Well, back to how I met him. So I was at Permaculture Voices, and it was a, the, the first conference that was ever done out there. It was a fantastic conference. Diego Flitter put it together. And we kept almost crossing paths and I never got to meet him. And I I was pretty disappointed that I didn't get to meet Toby. I'd gotten to meet so many other people that were just icons in permaculture that I really wanted to meet Alan Savory and Joel Salatin and, and Jeff Lawton, who I'd been in communication with for years at that point, but had never, you know, shook his hand. And I was sitting down to dinner with my wife and, uh, Somebody who knew I wanted to meet Toby and knew Toby wanted to meet me brought Toby over to meet me. And we were sitting at like a pub table. So even though I'm sitting, I'm like face height. And I get one of those things where like, you're going to sneeze. And I had just taken a sip of Chardonnay wine. And I didn't really have time to get my hands up. I tried. But I had two choices. Either try and turn my head and who knows where it's going to go or sneeze on my wife. So being a good husband, I turned my head and sneezed and I tried to hold it in. And I, you know, didn't open my mouth, but like a mist of Chardonnay went out, and Toby was standing about eight inches away from my mouth when I misted, like amateurized, like out of a perfume sprayer, Chardonnay wine on him. And I remember saying, that is so not how I wanted to meet you. And he was very gracious, and very understanding, and accepted my apology instantly. We had a great conversation, it started up a friendship, and then... Uh, the next year when I did the same conference, we had breakfast every day together and discussed permaculture. And so between the time that I met him the first time and the time I met him the second time, he took a journey toward anarchy, which was a real shock to a lot of his followers in permaculture. And as part of that, he came up with this concept of liberation permaculture. And it's, it's definitely worth going and listening to the episode on this. Uh, that I did with Toby about it, and his book, Permaculture City, came out. After that, I had him back on, and we discussed it more, and I'll, I'll put links to both of those in the show notes today for you. But the basic concept is that human beings in our very existence live as free beings, and that we self-organize. We don't really need someone to force organization upon us. If we realize that these people over here are not going to have enough food, our natural inclination, if we are not corrupted by society, would be, let's create a system here so those people aren't hungry. We don't really worry about the people way over there that we can't see right? until all the people here are cared for and we're stable. And then when we have enough surplus to still return it, then maybe we turn toward the whole act of let's help people outside of our space, outside of our sphere. And this has actually worked really, really well throughout history. And until we had agriculture and modern society and modern organizational controls, war was almost unheard of. And when it did happen, it was very self-limiting. Because if you live in kind of more of a tribal society, even if you have networks of tribes, and this group is angry at this group and they want to fight with each other, It's not some person that you can wave a flag for on television that doesn't exist yet and somebody you don't know is going to go fight the war on your behalf with technology. No, your brother, your sister, or you are going to fight, and every loss is felt. And so conflict was nowhere near the level that it is today prior to all of this organization and that we can bring, not all that back, we can't wave a magic wand, but I remind you of Bill's words, the solutions are embarrassingly simple. People don't go to war over things that are abundant and available everywhere. They go to war over things that are scarce or controlled to the point where they appear scarce, and then they go to war over control of them. Here's an example. Many, many, many years ago, human beings fought wars over salt and pepper. Salt and pepper. Men spilled the blood of other men over the control and flow of salt and pepper and pepper, and other spices at various times. Now, we've seen a lot of war in our lives, but I've never seen a war over salt or pepper. And it's because commoditization has made them abundant. Distribution has made them abundant. You can go to any supermarket and buy salt and pepper. No one fights over it. And so the solution to conflict is abundance. If all that is necessary is abundant, I didn't say free, I said abundant, then there's a lot less need for conflict. And think of every conflict we've had. It has to do with the control of people and the control of materials and scarcities. Conflicts erupt heavily in the places that have the least natural resources. Or they happen in the places that have incredible natural resources because somebody with less resources will want them. And you can add religion, you can add race, You can add all types of ideologies to it, but the underlying agitation is general, some form of scarcity or greed and wanting more. Liberation permaculture is designed to create groups and societies and and basically modern tribalism to the point where we separate ourselves from that. Now, I wanted to, like, again, talk. Now, I want to go full full turn here and talk about hunter gathering uh, as a lifestyle even in a suburban backyard, the fact that you can wander through your backyard and pick things up and eat it, right? And actually create environments that are attractive to wildlife that actually brings more abundance to your property. That's what we're talking about. But when I say hunter-gatherer, I imagine for those watching the video again, this is what you're thinking of. We've got some, looks like Native Americans here sneaking up on elk. This is a... uh, pretty big artistic interpretation. I don't think this would work very well. Elk are not this stupid. But, you know, they had to get the elk and the people in the frame together, so this is what the artist did. But this is what people generally think of. However, I'm talking more about what I've got on the screen for you right now. So if you look on the screen right now, there's a picture that's a split screen. And this is a three-quarter acre piece of my property. And the top picture is the property as it looked in 2014, and the lower picture as it looked in 2018. It's actually the fall of 2014, right after the swales were installed, before any of the trees were planted, and that's the spring of 2018. So it's less than four years in a place that, if you've not heard me talk about my property before, is very, very difficult to grow things in. Most of my property has somewhere between two and six inches of topsoil sitting on top of a limestone shoal. It is chunky pieces of limestone with no dirt in it at all, followed by slab limestone. And so with an excavator, you pull the dirt off in one scoop of the bucket, you pull a big chunk of rock out with the next scoop of the bucket with no soil, and then you hit sarcophagus-style limestone. And yet, look at this. And if I had told you on this little three-quarter acre section, go, be fruitful, hunt and gather in this wonderful three-quarter acre abode, you'd have looked at that and told me, I don't want to starve, Jack. And you'd have been correct. There wasn't much going on there. There were a few lizards running around and some bugs. There were some oak trees, most of them dying of of a disease called oak wilt because the land just really is rough on them and the people that owned the property before were highly abusive of it. There was very little growing as like wild herbage you wouldn't even find during the spring things like wild garlic or uh, spiderwort flowers or uh, wild hyacinth or anything like that. But if I told you go, fruit, go be fruitful and multiply and walk through that forest that's there in 2018 only four years later, well that would make sense to you. And that's what I want to teach you about today. How we make this happen. And I'm also going to play about a five minute video for you guys a little bit later today where we're going to walk through that forest in 2018 together. Alright. Moving on. One more time before we go into the tactics to make this happen. Polyculture versus monoculture. This is something that I think it gets glossed over by permaculturists a little bit too quickly as though if we just plant enough diversity, everything will sort itself out. In some places, maybe it will. But when we look at the picture on the left here, and we see three combines or three plows or whatever they are driving through this field of all straight lines, anybody with an eye for nature can understand that this will create problems. That the predator that exists to eat the pest that eats the crop has nothing in that field that brings that predator there. There's nothing there for that predator other than prey. And the prey are so abundant and so able to move around and so able to find what they want everywhere that they go and so able to exist in the soil over the winter and rise up and just start attacking again that no amount of predators are going to change that. If we look on the right, this isn't even the type of polyculture we're talking today about, but it is a polyculture. It's very much a home garden that looks like a small farm. But just by having that incredible diversity of plant life together, there's places for everybody. There's something for everyone, including your predators. And one of the keys you need to understand about polyculture versus monoculture and predators attacking prey is if we went out to the Serengeti and we killed all the wildebeests, how many lions are we going to have? So the idea that we need to eliminate the pest, all it results in is a depopulation of the pest, a destruction of the predator, and a return of the pest unabated. So if we killed almost all the wildebeests, waited for all the lions to die, the wildebeests would breed in incredible numbers, and until the lions came back, they would be out of control. So eliminating, if we called the wildebeests the pest, if we called all the plains game the pests, which man might just be crazy enough to do. And if we did that, and we killed them all, those that survived would eventually come back with such a vengeance that we'd be begging for the predator to return, but the the predator is gone. And this is what happens in monocultures. We literally wipe out the pest with an insecticide. The predators leave because there's nothing for them. There's no cover, there's no nectar, there's no habitat, there's not even any food because the prey's not there. But a little bit of the prey survives. The ones that are pesticide resistant, they survive in the soils, they survive, they hang on, and when they breed, we have super pests. And that's the biggest problem we have with monoculture. So, how do we start doing this in our own backyard? My first principle for you today is to use small spaces. And... The picture I have there for you, these are two different times. The the one on the left is from, I think, last year. And what I'm holding there is a harvest that I made out of a single bed made out of a 100-gallon Rubbermaid tub. So they're a little less than four foot long by about two foot wide. That's the surface area. So it's eight square feet. There's a head of broccoli. There's some purple oroch. There's some magenta amaranth. Uh, there's some parsley, there's some pea tendrils, there's some spinach, there's probably some other, there's chives, right? All that came from an eight square foot area, and I'm going to tell you when I was done harvesting it, you couldn't tell anybody harvested anything. Those pictures I've shown in the patch, the, the the past, where you have the wicking beds and the huge amount of layering in them, that's one of those. That's a small space. The next photograph is from when I lived in Arlington in a suburban yard of a third of an acre. And that's a pretty good-sized flower plot. It's probably about 12 inches in diameter at the top. So it's, it's a 12-inch a, a, a uh, radius, right? There's a tomato plant in there. If you look dead center, there's a tiny some tiny little leaves. That's a globe basil. There's some magenta orach. You can see down toward the center at the bottom, there's some nacertium just coming up, an edible flower species. And for pest control, there's some marigolds. That's all in a single flower pot. And I, I just want you to think, those of you that are like, I don't have enough space. How easy is it to build and maintain soil fertility in a pot like that? You start out with perfect soil. You put it in drip irrigation or you water it once a day. Weeds can't get a heads up in there. They can be pulled out. What can you do with 10 of those pots, just 10 of those pots, which is about 10 square feet of space? Say it's a foot and a half a square foot of space because it's a circle, so it's 15 square foot of space on a patio. And can you not wander through there and pick as you go? And instead of hitting one thing and harvesting the hell out of it, you're taking little pieces from different places, and this is a key to this mentality. The number one thing you can do to increase the productivity, especially in annuals that are annual fruiting plants or annual leaf crops, is harvest them. Instead of waiting till you have a massive amount and taking it all at once, little bits at a time encourage more flowering and more production. So instead of cultivating a jalapeno plant so it has a thousand jalapenos, or a hundred jalapenos, a thousand is a bit of a stretch, right? But I've had them with a hundred. If you're constantly picking your biggest jalapenos, you're triggering this plant. You're triggering it, and it's saying, oh, if th- my, my peppers are disappearing. If I want to procreate, if I want to make more peppers, more plants, I need more fruit, so it will blossom more and it will produce more. Pole beans. If you don't harvest pole beans, the, the production will slow down, and you'll end up with a massive amount, and you harvest them, and then you get another flush. But if you're constantly taking the ones that are big enough, you get a constant flowering. If you're using a leaf crop, you can let it grow to a huge head of lettuce, and you cut it, and it may grow back some. But if, as it's growing, if you're taking outer leaves, you get a continuous regrowth. You can get weeks or even months of production by using small spaces. So think that way. Next, let plants tell you where they want to grow. I've got two different images here again for those that can see them. The first one is something we've all seen. It's a crack in a sidewalk, and it's a bunch of various, you know, we'll call them weeds, though there's some actually valuable herbaceous species growing there, if you're good at your plant identification. And we look at this and we think, man, that must be a honey badger of a plant. What a terrible place for plants to grow. The reason I put that image in there, it's not a terrible place for plants to grow. It's actually a wonderful place for plants to grow if you look at it through the permaculture lens. And instead of through the agricultural lens where, hey, we need to plow a field and kill all the, you know, everything else and, and, and water it and, and what have you. So, why is this a perfect place for plants to grow? Number one, it's a fairly large crack between a curb and a sidewalk. And so, as winds blow, it accumulates dust particles, i.e., nutrient, and it actually builds up its own sophisticated little strip of topsoil and compost all by itself. When it rains on all that hard surface, where does the water go? All of it that goes to that side goes into that crack unless it overflows the curb, and as much as possible goes into that crack. And it irrigates itself every time that it rains. Then you think of sidewalk as hot, and sure, the surface temperature is hot, but what does that mean in the spring or the late fall? It means a microclimate of above-grade uh, above warmth. So plants like it warm. They don't like it super hot, but they like it warm. However, they like their roots cool. How cool do you think the soil is beneath that sidewalk? It's incredibly cool. That's actually an ideal place for plants to grow. And so what we end up doing, if we are in the modern mindset, we come by and we spray it with a chemical, and then the ones that survive grow back, and we get herbicide-resistant plants. Or we could embrace this. And say, so if plants grow there, what productive plants can go in the space instead of trying to destroy them? Because you create a vacuum, nature fills it. Next up, look on the right. You'll see some lemon balm. And I don't think it's a big, giant deal to be able to grow lemon balm. But if you look at the size of the leaf compared to my hand, that's a leaf about a third the size of my hand that I have pretty big hands. Um, when you look at that, you realize that lemon balm is happy. That's a particular wicking bed, and you can see there's some chives and other things in the back. But that, I use a lot of lemon balm. I use it for teas. Uh, I use it medicinally. I use it as an insecticide, part of my hunter gathering. I'm walking around. I get bit by a few mosquitoes. I walk by my lemon balm bed. I grab some of it, and I rub it on my arms and my face and my neck, and it, re- it repels mosquitoes. But when I saw that happen in that particular bed, that became the lemon balm bed. It didn't matter that I originally wanted that to be the bee balm bed bee bomb is mainly growing in a different bed, why? Because the lemon bomb told me so. Plant stuff everywhere, and where certain things tell you, I like this place, encourage that that's what that 's what our forefathers that 's what our ancestors did in the forest. Next, make pathways on your property. So you know, some of your property is going to be open field for you know maybe athletics and, and recreation for kids or because it needs to be for whatever reason. But a lot of your property should have some form of shade and tree or shrubbery and things like that on it. And you should design your property to have natural spaces to walk through. This is standing at the top of one of my swales, and it's looking through a sill toward a lower swale. But what do you see? Do you not see a pathway? And there's actually a pathway that crosses that pathway in between the swales. And if you walk this area, again, it's about three-quarters of an acre. If you walk the the entire pathway of patterns, it's close to a mile of walking if you go up and down and back and forth through all that edge. And what does that lead to? That leads to when I go out there, especially as we come into spring production mode, and a lot of things are growing that I don't even plant that are edibles like wild garlics and, 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 and certain wildflowers that are edible, like wild hyacinth and spiderwort. And then things that I have planted that are self receding different herbs and leaf crops and things like locust blossoms that are edible. And I'm walking through and I'm just hunting gathering as I walk through in my mornings with my coffee. And what I want to do right now with you guys is I want to share about a five-minute walk through this space and one small space just above it. You're going to hear some Jimmy Buffett music, so I guess I won't monetize this video because it'll be a copyright violation. Uh, I'm sure I'll get flagged for it by YouTube, but I usually leave it go, so I'm going to do it. If you are on the audio-only version, I'm going to edit this portion out for you uh, because I don't think it will benefit you very much. just want to reiterate here for you guys. I'm going back in my slide deck just a bit. What you're looking at the screen now is the area you just watched in the video that we walked through, and that video is from 2018. 2014 at the top A barren, empty landscape. Recently installed swales. They're full of water. There was just a rain. and Mulched, cover cropped, and nothing. You can see all the way to the neighbor's house. You can see all the way to the highway. Down at 2018, that picture there. But the video you just watched. The video you just watched was walking through that little three-quarter acre area. So definitely make pathways through your property. And there's so much in that video. And if, if you want to really make an impact, then this is how you do it. Because whenever I sit back and I have some losses, and even some of the plants that were uh, in that video, I've lost. I mean, we've had some pretty heavy droughts. But the forest continues to grow and evolve and self-replicate. I have a peach tree in there, for instance. I call it the duck tree. It's either the duck tree or the goose tree. I don't know, but one of the ducks or geese planted it. Because I didn't plant it. It grew from seed. It's one of the most productive plants that I have now. Uh, the these plants continue to survive because of the structure and the design. And then unless somebody bulldozes that when I'm dirt, when worms have fed on me as compost, like our next slide, it will still be there. It will still still be there. And so my challenge for you today is plant it was right, right with that video I did with. Plant a forest and leave a legacy. And As you have successes, make videos like that, even if you don't share them. Because like I said, every time I have a a bad day, every time I have a loss, uh, every time I'm in the middle of a drought, I look at that video or I look at something like it, and it reminds me of what can be. And it also reminds me that things are cyclical in nature, and if we're following nature's plan, even when we have bad years, we will have good years as well. We'll get through it. My next principle for making your backyard into a modern hunter gatherer lifestyle, uh, you know, abode, is compost everything. So, this is a picture I've used a bunch of times now. It's me with a compost pile. I build these piles. There's videos of how I do it. But I don't care how you compost. If you think about the way hunter gatherers lived, the last thing they had was a toilet that they flushed, that their stuff went away in. And they also didn't have. A garbage man that came and took away their stuff, all their wasted stuff. They didn't have a lot of garbage. They only had things that they needed and organic material that returned to its source one way or another. And so I believe that we should all compost everything that is compostable. But it doesn't have to be a pile. It doesn't have to be a worm bin, including many things in their place. When I lived in an urban environment and I didn't have the massive amount of material that I have today, I didn't have chickens to process it with. I did. A, it was a lot like what I do now, except I didn't take it to the chickens. So what I do now, if you look in that image, there's a little, there's a big shed, red shed, and there's a smaller shed in the background. Right in front of that shed, in front of the fence, the small one is a pit, and all my kitchen waste and weeds I pull and stuff go in that pit for the chickens to process. They get combined with the, with the bulk material out of the coop on an annual clean-out with a deep litter system, and they get composted in these piles that you see me standing in front of. When I lived in an urban environment, and I did not have chickens, and I did not have large amounts of material, I did something similar to this uh, pile with, with yard waste and all inside a rubber-made garbage can. But most of the stuff that came out of the kitchen didn't go in there because it was kind of a start-again, stop-again system. Again, baking the cake for a little bit, then adding more batter, baking it more. Compost doesn't work well that way. So when I went out in the mornings to check on my garden, I would take whatever was thrown away that night. I would pull back the mulch, you know, and if it was some uh, waste from a lettuce or something had gone off or the tops of, of something that had been trimmed or whatever, I just pulled the mulch back and laid it down and put the mulch back on it. That's it. And, and that's probably a lot like our hunter-gatherer ancestors did things. And it was both a composting but a propagation. Here's a story, and I, I always thought it was a bullshit story until my grandfather told me that it was true. My dad, when he was a kid, came walking down off the mountain that we always hunted on, and there were some apples that had you know kind of gone wild up there from an old homestead. So he's walking home, and it's fall, so there's an apple on the tree. So he, he pulls the apple off the tree, probably throws a couple in his, his his game bag, and he's eating, and one way or another, an apple core makes it home with him. And he's you know, 14, 15 years old at the time, so he's still fanciful, and fanciful is a good thing to have. It's something we lose as we age. So he goes over by the, the foot of this this mound that was in the back of our yard. We had a mound that was from a stripping ba- hole. So they had dug out and stripped mine the coal, and they left this huge bank back there kind of right in that little nook, he's like, that would be a good place for an apple tree. So he takes his foot and he just kind of, this is Pennsylvania soil, it's easy to dig, man. So he just digs out with his heel, he throws the apple in there and he kicks the dirt on top of it and he stomps it down. And son of a gun, if an apple tree didn't grow there. And again, I thought this was all BS because I remember him telling me when we would visit, and I was a little kid and we'd visit my grandpa, I planted that tree and he told me the whole story about how he did it. And I'm talking to my uh, my granddad one day and I tell him, you know, this is what this is what the old man said and I I kind of doubt it. He goes, "No, he did." He goes, "That's it. and he said your grandmother's made, you know, tons of apple pies and apple butter and all kinds of things out of that apple tree. Because your old man buried an apple when he was a kid there. This is how our forefathers lived. You had a piece of waste, you returned it to the forest. There's no garbage. There's no harm done by throwing an apple core into the woods and it's going to feed something, whether it's a, like a squirrel or it's microorganisms in the soil, and some portion of it's going to grow. Bill Mollison said they propagated for one of his sites tremendous numbers of apple trees by simply walking down the this, this, this side of this road where people had a habit of throwing apple cores out of car windows for whatever reason. And they took the seeds and they planted them. And oh, they're not true to type, but they made good apples. So, composting and propagation in this manner actually go hand in hand. You just don't know what's going to happen until you take the action. Next, and this goes right in with this growing in beds is fine. You know, having, I have garden beds. You guys have seen pictures of them. But grow everywhere. In every little place that you can. This is one of my aquatic systems. You're looking at mint. It's just a, Pot, set on a cinder block, about an inch deep in the water, one mint sprig. And that's, you know, one of my main tea herbs. And this is a particular variety of peppermint that makes a great tea. So, you know, I'm not big on, like, let's stop all international trade or anything, but I am for doing more locally when you can. So what has less of an environmental footprint? Tea that I make from that mint or tea that is shipped here across the ocean from China. Now, it's not the same plant, obviously, but it serves the same purpose. It's a warm drink or a cold drink that's refreshing on a summer's day. And actually, it's a hell of a lot more refreshing mint tea than what we think of Camilla, conventional teas, right? It's caffeine-free. It's easy to grow. And I'm growing it there. In the video you watched... Just to the right of that is a huge clump of watercress that was growing in that video. That was I went to the grocery store, and I was there, and I went through the produce section, and there was a clump, and it said living watercress, and it looked like crap. It It was like you didn't want to eat this. It looked yellow, and it wasn't very nice, and it was the only one they had left, and it was like five bucks. And I went over to the produce manager. I said, this doesn't look very healthy, but I think I can make it grow at home. Would you mark it down? He marked it down to 50 cents. I brought it home. I put it in that spot. It started to grow some new growth. I started pinching it off. I had it growing everywhere, but it was because we started in one small space. Grow all over the place. That walk that you saw, you'd see clumps of things all around in that walk you guys saw in my video. There's all types of forageable herbs growing in little clumps everywhere. Some of it's because it grew naturally. Some of it's because I found seed and I collected a bunch of it. I just threw it everywhere. This is how our forefathers lived. This is how we build that hunter-gatherer lifestyle in our backyard. And eat what you grow while you take a walk. Have fun with this. On the left, you'll see a Bloody Mary. And there's a bunch of stuff in it. There's some Swiss chard and some aquaponically grown celery. There's some spinach. Uh, it's a pretty pretty decked out Bloody Mary. Uh, there's some chives in it. I think there's a little bit of asparagus in the background off of one of the purple asparagus plants. And... It was something we actually started as fun, right? We, we just kind of like, we started a thing on, back when I still used Facebook, we started a thing called the Forged Mary. I think we did Forged Mary Fridays or Tuesdays or something like that. And the thing was, go out and forge whatever you can, make a Bloody Mary and post a picture of it. It was amazing how many people got involved doing that. And it, it, it taught them how much was out there that they could use, how many natural herbs that were out there. Because people were like, well, I found some wild garlic. What do I do with it? I don't know, dude. Pick a little flower buds off it, throw them on a toothpick, and put that in there and see how awesome that is. Take some of those little flower buds. Like, not everything had to be foraged. Take some olives, and instead of having them stuffed with pimentos, which suck, stuff wild garlic flowers into your olives Put your olives back into your jar in the brine and give them a couple days. Right? So that's foraging and bringing back, but for taking a walk and eating. The other picture there that looks like some sort of micro salad in some yuppie restaurant was my, my, I guess you'd call it natural breakfast vegetable taco. Um, there's actually, you can't really see it, but there's huge insertion leaves at the bottom of that that act like a, a roll to roll it up. There are wild garlic flowers, there's uh, locust blossoms, there's lamb's quarters, there's pea tendril, there's some parsley, and it looks like something that would be on a very expensive menu. Uh, There's some magenta orach, or either that, or it's a red amaranth, probably red amaranth. And I did that. It looks all fancy. It's fun to make your food look good. It's appetizing. Part of what we, when we eat, we look at things with our eyes, not just taste them with our mouths. It took me 25, 30 seconds to put that together. That's actually sitting on the ledge of one of my aquaponic systems right there. But most of that's actually wild. Very little of that is cultivated. It's either wild or naturalized. So wild means it grows all by itself, and it it, it got here one way or another, but I didn't do it. Naturalized is like the red amaranth. I have red, red amaranth pops up everywhere. It starts popping up in the spring. I've grown so much of it. Um, that it's reseeded so many times. There's seed, there's seed banks of it out there. And so, yeah, that's, that's a naturalized thing that I originally brought here. But I, an interesting story about this. I posted this picture on Facebook. This is from 2018, I think, or 2019. And in one of the prepper groups, I got a bunch of crap for it because they said, you know, you don't have time. You don't have time to do this stuff if you're trying to survive. I'm not trying to survive, I'm trying to thrive. And you can't tell me that building that much of a nutritional powerhouse in your backyard that requires very little effort from you doesn't have tremendous value toward survival and thriving. And if you think about the condition of indigenous peoples before they were interfered with, by modern humans bringing our agricultural ways and our city ways with us, their health was unbelievable. When the first European settlers came over to North America, and I'm talking when they really started settling, after the population of natives had been decimated by our diseases, they referred to them as giants. They weren't that big. Europeans were just shorter than they are today because of nutritional deficiencies, because they fished out their rivers, and they killed off their game, and they were living mostly on agricultural production. So they had actually lost size and stature and muscle tone. And they looked at these native peoples, and you, you would have thought if you if you could go back in time and nobody told you where you were and you didn't notice the different clothing, you'd have thought you're looking at a bunch of guys that spend every day in the gym. It's just because they were nutritionally well fed. They lived primarily on things like you're looking at. They weren't high-carbohydrate eaters. They were eating wild game and wild fish and wild shellfish, and they were getting their, their pharmacy of vitamins, their pharmacopoeia of vitamins from mostly leaf and vegetable crops. Next up, incorporate animals into your design. So one is me uh, hanging out there with uh, one of my little bantam chickens. That's inside the aviary when she used to live in there. Uh, the plan for her was she was supposed to, to hatch quail's eggs, Turns out Bantam chickens eat quail's eggs because of the speckles on them, so that didn't work out real well. But I'm kind of hanging out with her. She's gone now. She was one of my true chicken friends. I miss her. As you can see, she was quite affectionate, pecking at my mustache there. And I think we're having a discussion there. We We had gotten rid of ducks for a while. We're having a discussion there about bringing ducks back to the property, and she said it was a good idea. But I used them... To hatch ducks, I use them to process compost, and they are all free range now. She's out of the well; she was out of the aviary for the last couple of years of her life. And so, when I talk about incorporating animals into your design, most of you are probably thinking this way. You guys know me; I love ducks. I have a lot of ducks on the property. I have about forty ducks now. Uh, We use them for eggs. We use them for fertility. They're part of the overall irrigation strategy. Uh, they produce their own food in one of my aquatic systems. They produce fish in that aquatic system. They produce plants for us in that aquatic system, uh, even though they don't directly have access to it. And so you're usually, when you say incorporate animals, people are thinking about incorporating livestock. But look to the left. That's one of my little frog friends there. I didn't bring him here. Uh, he is a uh, green tree frog, and he showed up because I put aquatic systems in. And he's standing there looking at some bulrush, and he lives there, and he's King Frog of that little pond. And I, don't, I can't identify him anymore, because once they start really showing up in the spring anymore, there are many of them. There are, you know, frogs pro, make more frogs. When he first showed up, though, he was the only green tree frog on the property, at least that I had ever seen. And I went out and I had, you know, coffee and talked to him on a daily basis. Uh, and he was King Frog living in the bulrush. And now, like, there's, we have leopard frogs, which I did bring here. I bought a bunch of leopard frog tadpoles and put them in one of the systems, and they took off from there. We have green tree frogs that just showed up. We have massive numbers of toads. If we get a good rain in the spring, you almost can't hear yourself think outside in the evening when they're chattering. Um, last year, when I put in the, the duck aquatic system, I have three big, like, 150 gallon tanks that are above the big pond that water cycles through. There had to be 10,000 spring peeper tadpoles in each one of those tanks. Each one of them. There were tens of thousands in the big pond, but I think a lot of them got eaten by the bullhead catfish. But the ones up in the upper tanks, they hatched out. It was like an eruption of spring peepers everywhere. I, I realized that the adults could get down into the tank and out of the tank. The babies couldn't climb up the tank. I had to put uh, logs into the tank so the babies had an exit strategy because I would go out and we had uh azola growing on top of them. And there were hundreds as they would come off from tadpoles just running around on top of the azola And I'm like, if I don't give you guys an out, you don't have an out. So incorporate animals. We have bird feeders all over the property. My wife loves birds. I buy her a couple big bags of sunflower seed every time I go to the feed store. And most of the birds that come and eat that sunflower seed are not highly insectivorous, right? They're not insect eaters. You know, blue jays will eat seed, but they're pretty insectivorous, you know, pretty much an insectivore. They love insects, but we don't have a lot of blue jays around here. We have mostly cardinals and sparrows and chickadees and things like that, more seed eaters. We do have like mockingbirds and wrens and things that show up, and the habitat's good for them as well, but they don't really come to the bird feeder. So how is the bird feeder with a seeding bird that doesn't help control pests contributing to what we do? Well, they lock a lot of seed out, and then our ducks eat that seed. We get a lot of sprouting of sunflower seed that doesn't get eaten, and then the, bird, the ducks come in and eat that. But we're also getting a massive amount of manure everywhere that they are, and we're incorporating things in there that are not really food crops but are more habitat crops, like butterfly bush, to bring in pollinators. So the bird feeder, that, that, that to the average suburbanite, is just an isolated structure, is a ground conditioner, it's a mulcher, and it's a fertility aid. And it's a nectar-feeding system in a properly designed system. And it's all simply by understanding what is happening in this space and how do I harness it. And how do other, you know, then we have insects that come in and that they're under that mulch of all that black oil sunflower seed. And they're tilling the soil. And then we plant something like a butterfly bush there. And it just erupts. And then we put in a small water feature, which we'll get to next. We overflow the water feature. The water feature you know, waters the butterfly bush that's mulched and fertilized by the feeders. And then the birds come into the water feature and drink from the water feature and bathe from the water feature, especially, believe it or not, in winter. That's when they need the water most from a supply like that because all of the surface water that they normally rely on freezes over, but the moving water doesn't and they can get water. So incorporate animals into your system because you know our hunter-gatherer friends did as well, right, our our ancestors. Next, integrate water features. You guys know, most of you, that I'm building this this pond building course uh, to build these small ponds like I build. But nothing I've done has brought in the diversity of wildlife and animals and fed us as much as water systems. So on on the left there is just one of my Miyagi ponds, one of my timber frame ponds, a larger one, surface vegetation. You see the purple flowers. Those are uh, uh, Louisiana Gamecock irises, which what how do you get a water iris? You grow a, uh, uh, an iris in the water, basically. Uh, just a tremendous amount of diversity uh, growing there, and that's surrounded by gardens. So my garden wraps around my water feature. The two are not directly connected. Some people think the pond waters the garden. It doesn't. And because the pond is above grade, it doesn't really have a good way to do that and create a return through like a wicking system. So what is the connection? The connection is every evening and every morning when I go out to that pond, it hums with bees because a resource bees need is water. And By having those floating plants, the bees can land on the plants and drink water safely. So while they're there getting water for their hive and for themselves, they're going to pollinate the hell out of my garden. And there's all sorts of things for them to pollinate and all sorts of things that are attractive to them, so they spend a lot of time there. So I'm a bee helper instead of a beekeeper. I got out of beekeeping because I just I didn't enjoy it. I don't think we all need to do everything. But there's another thing that's happened since this picture. I now grow a plant called water hyacinth instead of the plant that you see there. That's water lettuce. I don't recommend that plant anymore because if it takes enough nutrient from the water, it actually sheds its roots and it can cause mechanical damage to your fish's gills. And once that happens, they're going to die. There's no way to save them by cleaning. The water will test perfectly, but the the the, the, the little pieces, the little hairs get it embedded in their gills and it kills them. So I switched to water hyacinth for this. It's much easier to monitor and control, and it has other uses. But the water hyacinth grows tons of flowers that the bees pollinate. So now the bees have this incredible draw, and then the water hyacinth makes compost, and the water hyacinth feeds the ducks, and the water hyacinth feeds the chickens. And the water hyacinth shades out the water so it controls algae in the summer, and it keeps the water cooler because it actually knocks sun off the water. And so much comes from this. And like I've said before, when I sit out, about it's about a month from now when it explodes. The air hums again, but this time it's dragonflies. And I've seen dragonflies I've never seen before. Magentas and mauves and blues and purples and reds. Different wing structures. They just are everywhere because they have all these water features. And then there's the direct production we think of. That catfish was a fingerling in March when he went in and that picture is from November and even though he's on my porch he looks like he's about to go on the grill Uh, I didn't have my camera with me I ran him over, had my wife take a shot and he still swims at least I'm pretty sure he does based on the pond he went back into look how fat he is right? and he's living on yes, some commercial fish feed but he's also living on minnows and and all of the things that live in that pond water brings so much life to land, it's one of the first things I would do Next, mulch, mulch, and mulch. Compost and mulch fix almost everything given enough time and done properly. And you almost can't do too much mulching. Now, if you put a foot of mulch on top of a little bitty seed, by the time it gets through there, it's all spindly and miserable. So that doesn't work. And if you mulch up against the the trunk of a tree, you will rot the bark and eventually kill the tree or at least make the tree not thrive. Other than doing things like that, there is no such thing as too much mulch. You could take a bare patch of ground and put it a foot deep in mulch and wait a couple of years and do nothing. And I promise you, in all but the most desert environments, a forest on a one foot deep, one acre square plot of land will erupt with no seed, with nothing. A forest will come simply because you've mulched. It It keeps the ground... Clean. Uh, It keeps the ground moist. It when you rain, you don't get erosion. You get percolation through the mulch. And what happens? And people are afraid of mulch because they think it's going to do what? It's going to rob nitrogen from the soil. I'm sorry, you don't understand chemistry uh, and biology either, because that's not possible. It's not possible. Now it will take some nitrogen. It will take some nitrogen right at the point that the mulch touches the soil, right at that surface. Only in the place between where the soil and the mulch interacts in that thin layer as it's slowly composting and that mulch is slowly coming down into your soil it will take that nitrogen in the compost process this is slow composting and it will bind the carbon and the nitrogen together temporarily and then it will go into the soil like a time capsule time release and it will fuel the growth of plants so there is no fear there and if you're if you're mulching into a garden and it's like your first or second year, go ahead and throw down some blood meal or something like that to give it a nitrogen kick for that kick start, And then go on with your life. And if your plants look a little depleted, pull the mulch back from them. Just, just disturb the soil a little bit. Put an ounce of good organic fertilizer like Dr. Earth 444 down. Push the mulch back. Water it in. Go on with your life. You'll never have a problem, I promise you. Mulch is the single best thing you can do in most situations because it's how nature grows. Remember, the forest is the teacher. It's the ultimate teacher. There is no teacher above the forest. Everything humans need to know about how to survive, the forest can teach us. But the forest doesn't teach like a teacher in school. It doesn't have a lesson plan. It doesn't tell us to sit down and take notes. It doesn't tell us when we're not paying attention. It doesn't give us exams. It doesn't have structure in that form. The forest teaches us the way that the original martial arts teachers in Asia taught. They would go to a public place and they would do forms. They would give no instruction. They would say no words. They wouldn't ask anybody to come. They wouldn't look for students. Students who wanted to be like the master would come, see what the master was doing, and imitate the master in complete abject failure at their first attempt. Because when you have a guy, let's say, that's something like a soft martial art like Tai Chi, that's practiced Tai Chi for 30 years, maybe he's the guy that invented it, or Kijan or something like that, it's more of an exercise, right? Back when it first started. Or he learned from the original master himself, and he's been doing it 30 years, He is a master, and there's no way your first attempt is going to completely emulate the master, but the students tried, and some gave up, some saw it as fruitless, some saw it as pointless, but some kept coming back, and over time, as the master observed the student's return, he would begin to aid the particular student who was truly learning, and maybe he would warrant a word or two, or maybe the master would stop for just a second, And when he stopped, all the students stopped. So he just went back to it. And until he stopped and the students remained in place, When the ones that did remain in place, maybe he walked into the group and took the guy's elbow and put it up just a little bit, and then walked back and returned to what he was doing. And another student would think, why doesn't he give me this attention? You haven't earned it yet. And only the students who truly desired the lesson would truly learn over time to become masters themselves. The forest is like that, except it's a thousand times more complex. Any question that we have, when we go into the forest, there is an answer. There is an answer. For anything that we need, i.e. require as humans. Now, how to make the next great computing system, maybe that's not there. Maybe it is, I don't know. But I do know if the question is, how do I survive a drought? Forest has the answer. How do I mitigate a drought? Forest has the answer. So when I walk into the forest, once I get through that thick edge where all of nature's abundance are, lesson number one, grasshopper, abundance is upon the edge. When you snatch the stone from my hand, it will be time for you to learn again, right? Think about it that way. The forest is this ancient sage, it's not the 90 year old Kung Fu master. It's the 900 million year old life form that never dies. And it's imparting its wisdom to you if you check it. So how do I, how, how do I handle a drought? I see the forest. The forest is still alive. The crops are dead. I walk into the forest. I go a hundred yards into the forest and I sit in silence and I listen to the way things are in the forest. And if I look at my feet, what do I see? Mulch. Nobody brought it there. And if I start clearing away the leaves, especially in the fall when they've recently started to drop, it might be a foot or more deep of leaves. And then by the snow and the wet winter, they'll they'll, they'll rot down. They'll begin to form the humus in the forest soil that's so fertile. I'll tell you a story. I was hunting one time. And this was about mid-October in Pennsylvania, so the leaves were really in fall. And I got up in my tree stand, spent, you know, it was a morning hunt, so it was still light when I decided to go home for lunch. And I was wearing a face covering, a head net, because deer see your eyes in your face, so I was wearing a head net. And I wear glasses, and when I'm hunting I wear my glasses. Because I can't see, I have, I'm nearsighted, right? So when I'm doing work, I don't wear them. And when I'm out and about, I do wear them. No deer. And I lower my bow down and all my gear down to the ground and get ready to climb down the tree. And I pull my head net off. And I watch my glasses go pew, pew, like a pinwheel straight to the ground. I wa- and I looked at exactly where they hit the leaves. Exact- I knew exactly where those hit those leaves, a pair of glasses, wireframe glasses. Not heavy or anything. I climb down the tree and I go to that spot and I spend about 25 minutes digging through those leaves and I never found them. How much mulch has there got to be to be able to not, I mean, I know I can't see well without them, but nearsighted I should be able to see. Never found them. They were swallowed by the mulch in the forest floor. So when I take that walk inside the master, and I ask the question, how do I survive a drought? The answer is at my feet. And if I, if I go in one of the driest times of the year and I scrape those leaves away till I get to that soil, it's black, and it's slightly moist, and it smells good. When we mulch, we're bringing that technique that nature has taught us to our backyard. Next, plant wild things. Like So I've talked about how a lot of stuff just grows well, but I've also talked about how we can find a wild thing Bring it home and plant it. For instance, when I lived in Arkansas, we would walk up the backside of the mountain, and across the plateau on the backside, there were some great blackberries. And some of the bushes produced really great blackberries. So I waited, so they were dormant, and I went to where those blackberries were with a shovel, and I dug several of them up, and I brought them home, and I planted them in my prepared beds where they had a much much more of an advantage than they did in the wild and they were incredible. They were unstoppable. You had to prune them back to keep them from taking everything over. The picture you're looking at there is you can see I'm wearing a pretty heavy coat so it's still pretty cold that time of year that I harvest. Those are lamb's quarters. Now lamb's quarters grow all over the place. There's a lot of you guys you don't have to plant lamb's quarters. You're going to have lamb's quarters. These lamb's quarters have a different story though. This was I've been propagating this particular uh, Lance Quarter race, I guess you'd call it, land race, since 2007. So before I started the survival podcast. There was a place I used to fish when I lived in Arlington, Texas. Had a little creek running through it. And it was in the middle of a drought. And almost everything was dead. And I was out looking for bait. I would, I would go down there and catch grasshoppers and stuff. Just to see, like, practice your survival skills. What can you do? You start with nothing Walk in. I even have a video where I did this. I walk in with a little kit, about you know, you can hold it in one hand, and make your own fishing gear and all this stuff, and and no bait. And what can you what can you end up catching? So I'm I'm doing that, and I see this little patch of green, and I go look at it, and it's not really got any kind of real advantage, as far as like water catchment or anything, and I realize it's lamb's quarters, and this is a very drought resistant apparently little bit of lamb's quarters there. So I go over to the creek and look for, like, some garbage, you know, and there's a soda can laying there. So I fill the soda can up a couple of times, and I water the lambsquarters. And this was a place I didn't just go kind of, like, fish and stuff. I, there was a really great walking trail through there. So I usually had this place at least once a week. So every time I went there, I stopped and I watered these lambsquarters through the drought that had already survived. And I did it with an end in mind. Eventually, they ended up, you know, as high as your head and seed all over them. And when the seed turned black and was ready to harvest, I went down there with a Ziploc bag, and I harvested as much seed as I could get off it. I have planted these at my place in Arkansas. I planted them at my place in Arlington. I planted them here. So there's three places that that race is now propagating itself, and it's completely unstoppable, and it's delicious. That's planting wild things. Tell me this isn't what our ancestors did. Tell this. Tell me this isn't what Native peoples... In North America did, for instance, when they found a chestnut and they they ate it, and this is a really good chestnut, that they didn't just collect those nuts and then plant them in open spaces to grow more chestnuts or berries or what have you. It's how we ended up in the mess we are. We went from horticulture and then the psychopaths in society figured out, hey, if we grow things that can grow lots of people that we can completely tightly control, that we can store and we can put grain bills against them and create the first currency... We can literally enslave and control society through agriculture. But it started with horticulture. And that doesn't make horticulture bad. It just means maybe that's where we need to stop. At least as individuals. If everybody lived the way that I'm showing you today right now, how much of a load off the system would it be? Think about that. Right now we're talking about food shortages at a time when society is more technologically advanced than any other time in history. Any other time in history. We can grow food in the frickin' desert, and I don't mean with permaculture. We have systems now that desalinate, and I'm not saying this is good, I'm just saying it is. We have systems that desalinate ocean water and, and, and irrigate crops and grow food, and we're talking about food shortages. Not just in the undeveloped world, but in the developed world. We're having food shortages right now of things that we produced almost exclusively in the United States in the United States. How much pressure does this take off the system? If the average person had a few laying hens, they ate at least some of their food from what they produced for the hens themselves instead of from a feed bag. If the average person could eat four or five salads a week from their backyard. If the average person could do something like produce one meal of fish a week from small ponds in their backyard? How much does that take away? And for those that are concerned about the environment, the most toxic thing as an industry to our environment today is modern agriculture. It's not fossil fuels. In fact, a lot of the most toxic things that come from fossil fuels are so we can produce fertilizer for modern agriculture. The people that think they're saving the environment by eating vegan and you're eating wheat that was trucked 5,000 miles multiple times before it got into your belly. I'm sorry, you're not helping the environment. And it came from a field where we killed literally every single thing in the soil to grow that wheat. And whatever does manage to live... We're going to kill it again next time we sow. We're going we're gonna to plow it, and we're going to plant it, and we're going to sow it. And there are ways to do this. There are ways to do this and grow even these grains without destroying crops. I visited a man in northern Missouri. He was a, he was a nuclear engineer by trade. His wife got cancer, and they couldn't afford to eat the way they needed to. He moved to this farm when he bought it. He went down to the land office to take care of paperwork, and the lady at the counter laughed in his face for being stupid enough to buy this piece of land. It was known to have been plowed so hard so many times that it had been so worthless that the guy did the happy dance when he sold it for under market value and got out from underneath it, and this guy bought it. And he went to growing in strips. Each strip just wide enough for his 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 plow and his harvest equipment to go through turn around and come back two passes each strip and he grew grains and forbs and and different crops 18 acres he was farming doing this way he was growing very beta beta carotene rich corns he was growing wheats he was also growing vegetable crops and he was growing you know and he was rotating the strips he had been doing it 10 years at the time that I was there And he told me a story. Two years prior, he had sent soils in for sample. And the state lab got in touch with him and they said, if you're plowing this soil, you're going to get in trouble. And he said, what are you talking about? And the guy's like, I had to reach out to you. He said, I guess you don't understand what you're doing. You're, you're, You're plowing in native prairie. That's all protected now here in this county what little is left of it you're plowing native and the guy said I'm not plowing native prairie I'm not plowing native prairie I've done this these are the same soil this is from the same soil I sent you samples of years ago they didn't believe it they came out to look at it and all it he's plowing but it's how he's plowing and when he's plowing and timing the rotation we can do it with wild things we can do it with cultivated things but we need to emulate nature Next, I want to give you six here at the end permaculture principles to to wrap up with today. Number one, nature is abundance. Remember I said that conflicts at the beginning come from scarcity. They come from scarcity. Scarcity is real, but it is often a creation of man. It's both things. There are scarcities. Plutonium is scarce. Gold is somewhat scarce, not as scarce as plutonium. Helium-3 is extremely scarce on planet Earth and abundant on the lunar surface. So there are things that are scarce. Most scarcity, when it comes to what humans need to survive, is either created through malice or created through incompetence or ignorance by human beings. They move into a fertile valley, they start plowing it, They start making lots of food, lots of people move in, they build a city, a civilization around it. Eventually the field is worn out. Now there's more people there than there ever were, and they've destroyed the area and they leave a desert behind when they finally abandon it. I've just given you the story of almost every culture and society that's ever been built on annual crops. This is exactly what happens. The scales change and the timelines change as technology advances, but the same thing happens. We come in and we mine the ground Until there's nothing left and we're not putting anything back. Using chemicals. And we create scarcity. And then there's conflict for scarcity. But nature is abundant. Everywhere you look in nature that we haven't ruined or destroyed. Or in the best thing is when we go in and we understand what we're looking at before we touch it. And we make little changes. And we see what happens. And we, we are not just looking for what do we get. But what are we damaging? And when we find the balance where we increase production, but the underlying productivity actually goes up, now we're in a regenerative point. So every answer really is in the forest. Every answer really is in nature. There is no true scarcity in nature. Now, if it's, if it's November, there is definitely a scarcity of blackberries. Not the plant, but the fruit. But there's not a scarcity of nutmast. There's not a scarcity of game. There's not a scarcity of fall spawning you know, trout or char species coming up the, the creek to spawn. There is an abundance in nature year-round if you know where to look for it. And this is how we build our backyards if we want this hunter-gatherer lifestyle. And man is a part of nature. We are not separate as we have been taught. We, we're, we're entering, I think, one of the most dangerous times in human history. Because of something we're being taught, and we have been taught for almost a 100 years now, that is fundamentally untrue. And it is very dangerous to convince a people of a truth that is a lie. Because it leads to even the best intentions causing massive damage. And that is that we are humans, and that we belong in cities, in towns, in, in houses, and that's not nature, and nature's over there. Nature's over there in the wilderness. Nature's up in the Bob Marshall Wilderness of Montana. Nature is out past the farms in a reserve. Nature is the little spot of nature in the two-acre city park surrounded by people who are not part of nature, who are trying to hold on to a tiny piece of nature to go look at once in a while. That is not nature, and it's not natural. We are, as native to this planet, is any other species, and we are not the only species, if not held in check, capable of damaging ecosystems. If elephants get overpopulated, they damage ecosystems. Especially if there's an absence of predators that keep them in certain behavioral patterns. Right? There are all types of animals, insects, etc., that can do immense damage, but natural cycles pull them back in check. The danger with humans is we have figured out through our brains the implementation of technology, how to, to exceed the natural checks on our activities. That's where we do the damage. It's not because we don't belong here. I belong here as much as a freaking coyote belongs here. We're both, born, we're both native to Earth. We're both part of the, of the biological evolution on our planet. I am a natural being living in a natural environment because I choose to. And as long as we see ourselves separate from nature, then in our minds we can do whatever the fuck we want right here, as long as over there we protect it. We should exist as a part of nature. And as soon as you think that way, your backyard changes, even if it's only a, a quarter of an acre in the suburbs. Next, if you build it, they will come. I know it was from a movie. I know it was about baseball. If you build it, they will come. But it's true, and it applies to permaculture. Remember the little green frog, king frog, until he had subjects, and then they all became, you couldn't tell them apart anymore? I didn't bring the frog. I built the habitat, and the frog came. I have another frog. I call him Fred the Frog. He's a giant bullfrog. I mean, the biggest bullfrog I've ever seen in my life. He lives in one of my ponds. Um, he actually moved from one pond to the other. So he used to live in one of my steel ponds, my little 470-gallon in-the-ground uh, stock tank-based pond. And when I put the big pond in, the 1,100-gallon low pond, one day I, th- I saw this weird thing going across the grass. And a duck was chasing it. The duck was totally out of his league, by the way. And I was like, is that like a, a, somebody's neighbor's kitten or something? it was a huge thing, and it was a weird movement. So I, I, I go kind of running around the pool, and Fred ends up Somehow fitting through the goat fence and getting in, and he bailed into, like he wanted to move to the new pond. And he lives there now. But when I built that habitat, he came. And he came the year that we got 28 days of rain in May. And we had flooding everywhere. And we're about two miles from any other surface water. And Fred migrated during the flood. We had turtles, I mean, like lake turtles walking around our property. That season, and I worked hard to keep those out of the ponds. I really didn't want those there, not in a small pond. But if you build it, they will come. I don't have beehives, but I have bees because I built habitat. I have these little endangered Mexican diamond doves that live here now. I have species of frogs and lizards I've never even seen before, and I am a freak about herpetology. I love frogs and snakes and lizards. When I find a reptile or an amphibian and I don't know what it is, that's something new. There wasn't a worm on this property when I moved here. There's worms everywhere now. If you build it, they will come. Next, manage first by the square foot, then the square yard, and then by the acre. As I've said before, walk outside, look down at your feet, design that. Even if you're not going to plant anything there. Okay, what is that? I just walk off my porch as natural as possible. It's the beginning of a path. Have you ever simplified it down to that simple when it comes to how you design your property? If I walk out the door and off the sidewalk in a natural flow, I've started a natural path. Where do I go next? What's on both sides of it? I've got a square foot. Then I've got, you know, nine square feet is a square yard. And then I've got the larger design. And if we will pull ourselves into that mindset, Instead of worrying about what's way back over there, what do I do with this first space that I step into? How do I design my zone one to provide most of the things I need for my kitchen? You do that, everything else flows together. Next, remember nature's all around you. I talked about how we're not separate, but that's because no part of our planet is not nature. We might cover nature up. So you might like go into some major industrial area and it's all giant tall high rise buildings and stuff like that. You, this is not nature. Nature's there. You just hit it. This takes me back to my, my breakfasts with Toby Heman way out in California at Permaculture Voices. The one day. I got up early in the morning and I just turned the TV on and it was all crap and garbage and news. And I kept flipping through it until I found something just for some background noise while I did my email and all the stuff I had to do while I was on the road and got ready for my talk that day to something that seemed somewhat intellectual. And I found this thing and it was about these areas of Chicago where these buildings were abandoned like 30 years ago. Like this whole industrial area that was just left to rot. And it was how the forest moved back in. The forest was eating the buildings there was a four story parking garage. There were trees growing on the top floor and it looked like, like the temple of doom from like Sri Lanka or something. And the roots of the trees were going down the sides of the building into the soil on the ground. Four stories and decomposing the concrete structures. Nature is Everywhere. It's all around you. And all of these monuments to humanity's nonsense that we build will one day be consumed by nature. We are temporary unless we choose to be part of the eternal. And I remember I went down that morning to breakfast and sat down, and I think it was the last or second to last time I I ever got to spend some time personally with Toby before he passed away a few years later. And I told him about it. And he got this really wry look in his eyes and a little twinkle, well Santa Claus twinkle. And he said, "See, it won't take long." And so it's up to us to either be part of nature reclaiming what we've hidden, or to be consumed by nature because we stand in opposition to an undeniable, unyielding force. This idea that humans will end that nature is nonsensical. We'll never end nature. We may end up ending ourselves if we're not careful. But nature will always win. Nature was here before us. Nature will be here after us. The only thing that will end the true natural processes on this planet, including if we annihilate ourselves with nuclear bombs, eventually life will come back and nature will restore the balance. The only thing that will truly end that here on this spinning ball is when our sun, millions and millions and millions or billions of years, later expands and evaporates it. That is the only thing capable of stopping nature. Nature is everywhere. doesn't mean we can't damage It doesn't mean we can't be a force for evil. But it's there. And it's up to us to work with it. Next, grow where you are and leave something behind when you move on. And that will bring me to my last slide. I talk to so many people and I feel like as much as I've tried to teach you're not hearing the most important part I live in this little property jack right now and I really don't want to plant trees and bushes or anything much like that because we plan on leaving in a couple of years wrong answer I don't believe that humans ever truly own property and I don't mean that from some sort of socialist vantage point or something like that What I mean is since we die, since we die, I can only steward the property I'm on until I die. I'm going to die. Nobody gets out of this process alive. What happens after we die? Do we disappear and disintegrate into nothingness? Do we continue in some sort of energetic force? Is there some sort of afterlife? I don't know. We all have our own beliefs about that. It doesn't change the fact that one day I won't be here anymore. I will die and much of what I've planted and put in place will continue. Now that's if I die. What's the difference if I move? Now, do I think you should invest a million dollars in trees that you don't have on a small property that you know you're going to be leaving? Probably not. But In all the things I've heard over the years, a few of them have gone inside of me and never let me go. And one is this Greek proverb that I have up for you now. A society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they shall never sit in. This is what permaculture is really about. This is not just about trees, this proverb. This is about men which means all mankind, men, women, etc. Doing things that are not just for themselves, that are for others, that they'll never know, that they'll never see. To plant a a tree and know you shall never see it grow large enough to sit in its shade. That is thinking about your children and their children. And their grandchildren, and that is the ethos that the ethics of permaculture were developed with, and the prime directive: I must take responsibility for myself and that of my children. And as I've said, when you when you say my children, in that directive, it doesn't just mean that that first familial generation. It means all of the children that come from your line, that will ever be, until that son obliterates them or until we obliterate ourselves that's what it means so if i'm going to be in a small place i'm going to plant some trees and if i spend a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars planting trees assuming i have the ability and i leave them behind i'm not worried about what i left behind i'm proud of what i left behind we need to think that way we and, and you can propagate trees Propagating plants is like printing money. You can buy one blackberry plant and in a couple of years you can make a hundred out of it. I don't care if the law says it's patented. I don't care. Nobody's going to do anything in a backyard. Plants propagate themselves. Always, if you stu- if you have the absolute blessing to be able to steward any piece of land for any period of time, do something to make it better for your children, their children, and their children. Period. I plant stuff places I don't steward or own. That story of my dad with an apple. I'm walking around somewhere with an apple. If the soil soft enough, I can dig a hole with my heel. It goes in there. How many of them grew over the years? I don't know. I don't eat that many apples. But if one did it, it was worth it. When I, was, when, I, when I lived in Arkansas, I used to walk around, I'd find these big, beautiful acorns, and I'd walk around with a freaking wrist rocket slingshot, <laughs> and shooting like freaking hand grenades of seed balls, distributing these acorns further than any squirrel would ever do it. Why? Because a society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they will never sit in, and they know they will never sit in them. This is so much more than about trees. This is about developing natural systems of abundance. And if we do that in the right way and we make the best use of our time, think back to the video I showed you today if you watched the the, the video version of this. Look at what happened to one little piece of rocky ground in four years because one person said, even though I won't always be here, I want to leave something behind that will. It may not look like it did when I put it in. It may completely evolve into something different. But with a combination of earthworks and planting and caring for what you plant and animals and this integrated system and this means of maintenance by being a hunter gatherer. See, this is why the hunter gatherer approach is so powerful. If you're always walking your property, you see all the little things as they go wrong. And you need little actions to push them back into a natural flow. Where if you don't do that, if you plow a field and plant it, you check on it once a month, automate the sprinklers, automate the fertilizer. You might get a lot of bushels of wheat, but you don't see the problems with the land. The only problem you see is with the bottom line. We fix that with more chemicals and by raising prices. More plowing, more machinery, more efficiency. You can see how this is the antithesis of nature. Nature has an ongoing, slow correcting process. The, the little beetles and things till the soil of the forest. They don't do it all at once, a little bit every day. That's what this is all part about. I'm going to take, I have a few things I started, we'll see. If I can answer a few of them, and then we'll wrap up, because I have a busy day planned today. Wayne says, any knowledge on growing Kentucky coffee bean trees as a substitute for actual coffee? I have to tell you, Wayne, I know absolutely nothing about Kentucky coffee bean trees, though I don't know that they are for making a coffee substitute. Maybe they are. I will tell you, the closest thing I've ever had to something that tastes like coffee, even though it's caffeine-free, that you can grow anywhere is a combination of roasted chicory root and roasted dandelion root. And you can simply roast that till it's a dark brown in your oven, uh, and then it'll be nice and dried out, let it sit for a day or two and grind it up. And it makes a reasonable coffee substitute, but again, it does not have any caffeine in it. Uh, but it's pretty tasty. Uh, some people like it, some people don't, but it'll, it's, it's pretty good. I, I, don't, I don't know anything about Kentucky Coffee Tree, though, uh, unfortunately. But I'm going to look into it because that's an interesting question. Uh, Nunya Biz says, do you think drone spraying can help with precision crop management? It reminds me of a book by James Howard Kunstler called Too Much Magic, which is about the downfall of humanity and relying too much on technology to fix things and the aftermath of that. I, I, I think that you're doing less bad with drones that use herbicide in precise application on specific plants. So basically they have these drones now, they can fly through a field and they can say that's that's a soybean, that's a soybean, that's a soybean, that's a soybean. Oh, that's not a soybean and then it covers down and it's like this little tiny t- of glyphosate and it kills It's certainly less bad. We're still plowing the field. We're still growing soy as a monocrop. We're still destroying habitat. We're still wiping out the life in the soil. And as nature's bringing in the pioneer to try to restore the balance, we're killing the thing that restores the balance, and we're still creating super pests. We will create with that technique as well glyphosate or some other herbicide-resistant forms of the weed. So if we were going to do it at all, and we weren't going to get out of the monocropping and stuff, because that's a long path, and I'll admit that. Then there are drones, and usually these aren't flying drones, they're more rolling drones, and they use mechanical means of destroying pests. So what they'll do is they'll see, oh, that's a weed, and a little thing comes out and just like chops it up. So it's like a person going through and hand weeding. I think that actually makes a lot of sense, and that has a real place in organic you know, market gardening at a large scale. I think there's some real future to that. But as long as we're spraying an herbicide, we're going to cause the problems of an herbicide. We're just causing less of the problem. So uh, there's also technologies that use drones to kill insect pests. They recognize certain insects as pests, and some of them actually use lasers. Now, these aren't like Star Trek lasers, like like a Death Star destroying a planet. These are very low-intensity lasers. Like You might not even notice it if somebody pointed it at your skin. Right? Or you might after a time. But an insect doesn't need much. It, even if it doesn't die instantly, it disrupts the insect's life forces, basically, and kills it. And they can actually program these to go, oh, ladybug, nope. Oh, dragonfly, nope. Ah, weevil. Bzzzt. Ah, there's a mite, you know, a, 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 an aphid or something, or a, a leaf miner. And it And that's actually some pretty interesting technology. And my only concern, though, again, is if we wipe out the pests, then the predators have nothing to eat. And I think there's better ways to do things. However, there are certain crops that the pests have become really a problem for. And on top of that, there's not really a predator for the pest. So m- many of you that live in the South especially have a loathing hatred like I do for an insect known as a squash vine borer. Nothing eats squash vine borers, and nothing eats stink bugs, and nothing eats squash bugs. So they're all pests that affect a very a major staple crop for humans. And in certain climates, they're very hard to control. So that could be useful. How can and how do you irrigate grains? Integrate grains into permaculture. The the, the story I told about the guy in Missouri would be a great way to do it. We do it by only growing small portions of grain, and we can still grow a lot of grain. And we don't need the amount of grain that we grow. You, You have to look at why do we grow grain. And we grow grain because it's a great crop to control humans with. Because we can store it in massive silos. And we can tax it, and we can quantify it, and we can ship it. So if you want to run a global system of control, grain's a great product. Grain was the originator of the first ever currency. Gold was the original currency. But when when man developed agriculture, and he realized that, first it was the pharaohs and whatnot that realized, well, I could do a grain bill. And say that if you go to the granary and present this bill, you can get two bushels of wheat, and that has a certain value. And I can issue that to this person and this person can then go, I don't, need the, I don't need the grain, I want something else, and can use it as a form of currency. Not money, currency, like the dollar. Dollar's a currency, it's not money. We won't get into that today. So a form of local exchangeable currency, or a LETS system in Permaculture, Chapter 14 of the Manual. And it soon turned into banking, and it soon turned into an entire system of control. And it has its upsides. If you can save it, you can use it to feed people during famine. But we went to where we took something that was a niche food source and we turned it into the staple of humanity and the staple of livestock. We feed grain to cattle. Cows don't eat grain in nature. They might get a little bit here and there, but cows eat grass. They're a ruminant. Ruminants don't belong eating grain. Chickens eat seeds, but they're very, very in- insectivorous, right? They like insects. We shouldn't be feeding exclusively grain to chickens. There is no massive natural source of grain. Does that mean we can't grow it in quantity? No, but we need to limit how much we grow. And we, like Fukuoka, Masanubo Fukuoka had a great system for growing grain. He grew rice in rice paddies, right? But they weren't flooded like the typical. And in the fall... He threw down a crop of, let's say, barley, cut the rice, the this rice straw, on top of the barley and let it grow. And his fields got more fertile and produced more barley and more more rice every season. That would be another way to do it. But the gentleman I told the story about in Missouri, that would be a great way to do it as well, because he was doing it. And there's, you can't refute... The science of analyzing soil and going, this soil looks so much like native prairie soil that the guy at the lab thinks it's native prairie soil. It doesn't even understand how it happened. Uh, Heirloom Heritage says, are all locust tree flowers edible? I don't think so. I've never heard of anybody eating the blossoms of a honey locust. Maybe they are. Uh, When I say eating locust flower, I'm talking about black locust. And black locust seed pods are not edible, and I don't believe leaves are either. But the flowers of the black locust tree are this, this beautiful waterfall-looking white pea. They look like flowers from a pea, and it is a legume tree. And they taste like they taste like the the flavor of like a sweet pea, but without a lot of the sugar. Then they taste sweet, and then they're gone. It's a really cool thing to add to salads and stuff like that. Um, what do they use to dye mulch and should dyed mulch be avoided? The answer is I don't know and I don't know. My instinct is they probably should be avoided. But the reason I say I don't know is since I've never even looked at what they dye mulch with. And since I don't know what that substance is, how can I say it should should be avoided? My guess is it's some form of industrial process. And even if it doesn't really harm the grounds you put the dyed mulch on, it probably is not good for the environment. But plenty of things that we are still dealing with aren't good for the environment. So that's my that's my gut instinct. But no, I, I I don't know for sure. I got one more. Mama Gator, thoughts on surrounding my raised garden beds area with stone. Don't want to chase the beneficial insects out. Stone will not chase away beneficial insects. It won't. You won't hurt anything by surrounding your res bed with stone. But you might have missed earlier where I said if you surround a raised bed with rocks and stones, you're going to get a lot of growth of vegetation out of those rocks and stones. You're creating edge. And you're not you see, people think, well, I put the stones in, right? So I created, I created an edge on the outside of the stones. Oh no, 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 no. You've created many edges. You've created an edge where the stones contact the garden bed. You've created the outside edge that everybody thinks about where the stones contact the grass or the field. But in between the stones, every stone where it comes together, you've created another micro edge. And when the winds come in your spring and your fall and dust comes through the air, it will collect there just like this image I showed you in the street. And it will form this little niche pocket and stuff's going to grow there. That's not necessarily bad. You just need to be aware that that's what you're doing. You increase edge you increase productivity, and the productivity may be what you want or may be what you don't want. If you can live with those weeds there, that's fine. If you'll control them mechanically so the point where they go to seed, they're not seeding weed seeds into your garden, they can be an advantage. If you plant things there that handle the the, the location, that handle the heat, that occupy the space, it can become more production and more for your beneficials. So uh, something like a trailing time, Right? very strong mediterranean herb great scent when it touches the rocks and it gets swarmed up wonderful little flowers great insect insectary plant right wonderful but you know, it's gonna dandelion is an edible weed. I love when dandelions grow. It took me it took me five years to get a dandelion to grow on this property that I showed you that video of. That's how bad this place was. I was when I moved here. It wouldn't grow dandelion and it would barely grow plantain. Two weeds that are everywhere that are productive. I couldn't grow them. But when you create those little edge environments, those little micro niches, things happen. Uh John Rice says add upon holly for caffeine, and that's true. I said earlier that we could make a, a ground chicory or ground chicory and dandelion root that's roasted and have a coffee substitute. You could add a little bit of yapon to that. So it's like a, it's a ground thing with a tea put together. I don't know what it would taste like, but yapon holly, I believe is the only native source of caffeine in North America. I want to give you a caution though. Yapon holly and, and a, a a, uh, a naturalized domesticated plant called privet are not really hard to distinguish but they look similar and privet is freaking poison so if you're going to forage for anything be sure of what you're foraging but if you're going to forage for yapon Holly make damn sure you're not making tea out of privet because you're going to end up puking your guts out and or worse ending up in the ER or dead. It is a very very toxic plant and that's something that people should be aware of um. That's it. I'm gonna I'm gonna drop here, uh, and and, and just finish up now. I want to thank all of you that were here today. I, I really appreciate you guys turning up for today's episode. Um, I hope you really enjoyed it. I hope you're getting a lot out of this series. I want you to be able to take this whole series when it's done. And we have one more episode next week, and I'm thinking about adding a six to it and then wrapping it up. I want you to be able to watch it once. I want you to be able to kind of ruminate on it. And I want you to be able to come back and look at it again. And I, I'm hoping that I put enough into this that if you, if you watch this five times in the next five months and don't look at it for a year and you come back to it, you won't just relearn what you forgot. You'll be like, holy crap, I never got that before. I'm trying to pour... I've been doing this in earnest... Since two thousand nine. I've I've grown food my whole life. I learned very conventional organic gardening practices from my grandfather and my grandmother. So grandfather on one side, grandmother on the other. And I've always loved horticulture, I've always loved plants. I started the survival podcast in 08 I discovered permaculture then and by 09 I had completely completely thrown myself into the deep end of the permaculture pool. I immediately started teaching and practicing permaculture, maybe quicker than I should have with the teaching. I've ingested everything that I can find from every great teacher, including people who I philosophically disagree with. I've made a lot of mistakes, and I've had a lot of success. And it's built to a point where I have enough knowledge that when somebody asks me a question, the reason I say it depends is because it depends. And I've actually seen 20 or 30 of the variations that it depends on. And I know that I have only seen a fraction of of all the things that it depends on. And what I'm trying to do, instead of just teaching a paint-by-numbers approach, I'm trying to expose you guys to enough concepts and enough principles that as you walk the journey yourself, you'll begin to learn at an accelerated rate. It's like the proverbial snowball in the cartoon rolling down the hill. The bigger it gets, the faster it grows because the more surface area contacts the next layer. And that's how this happens. And it's you get into a point where you look at a thing and you immediately know what's wrong and you explain it to somebody and they want to know how you know it. And you actually get to a point where you don't even know how you know it. You just do. And I want to self-replicate as many people like that in the world as I can while I'm still here. Because I believe that one of the most noble things we can do is begin to practice permaculture in our world. I really believe that. I think it's an incredibly noble thing. But I think what's even more noble is to practice it to the point we become competent enough to teach. I don't care if it's a tiny fraction of it. I don't care if you ever become a known speaker or a known teacher or you ever get a PDC. If you learn how to do a few great things in your own backyard and you spread that, you have no idea what fire you're going to light somewhere. You have no idea what might lead to someone that teaches at a level like I do or leads somebody to teach at a level like Jeff Lawton does or Bill Mollison did when he was still here. You have no idea what fire you can light by teaching. I told a story earlier uh, this week on, on the regular show. But when I was a kid, in like second grade or first grade, it was first grade, when we were a little kid, teacher brought a pomegranate in to class, got off the lesson plan, decided to teach kids what food was, talked about how pomegranates grew all over Florida, broke the pomegranate open, little bitty cups and gave all of us like three little pomegranate seeds and I ate that and it was the first time I had ever eaten anything that tasted like a pomegranate it was sweet and it was tart and it was juicy and it was freaking amazing and I went home I looked around my apartment complex that I lived in it's a huge apartment complex and I realized there were pomegranates that were planted like landscape trees next thing I don't bring pomegranates home my parents were afraid to eat them they didn't know what the hell they were like, no we had it at school it's great you know Make a stain. Everybody gets in trouble for making stains with it. But it was like there's food here, and that led me to realize how many plum trees existed in this. And then I started finding mushrooms. And I knew that they could poison me, but I would, you know, pick the mushroom and put it in a little bucket and take it home, and show it to my dad and say, "What is this?" you're like, "Don't eat that. It'll kill you." "Don't eat that. I don't know what it is." Or, "That's a woodier mushroom. That's a good one." And he'd say, "Go bring a bunch home. Don't eat any of them till I look at them all." I know you know what you're looking at if that teacher doesn't bring in that pomegranate in a fourth glade classroom that whole sequence of events doesn't start never think that you're not ready to teach just because you don't know enough yet you know what you know your potential student doesn't know what you know you transfer that knowledge into them that's teaching and I remember Jeff was asked about this in one of his PDCs. When should we start teaching? And, and Bill had been asked this as well, and they both gave very similar answers. that were like, as soon as you know, as soon as you know something that the person you're teaching doesn't know. Because that's, te- that's how teaching works with human beings. This is a human process. Some of us are natural teachers. We love to teach. Some of us not as much. Some of us are more extroverted or introverted. You can be an introvert and tell somebody how to grow a flower. You don't have to be larger than life. You don't have to go out and build a business or a teaching practice to be a teacher. And you never know. You never know that one time, that one small act, that one little flame, what it will light. Like I said earlier, make the most of your dash. Plant a fl- Plant a forest. And leave a, leave a legacy. And that's more than just a physical forest. When we teach others, we put those pioneer species of trees out there. You can plant a forest, you can plant a dozen forests, or you can teach 10 people to teach 10 people, to teach 10 people, to teach 10 people. And without even knowing you've done it, you can leave a legacy behind of millions of acres of productive forest. With that, I'll catch you guys tomorrow. We're going to have a great interview staying on with permaculture I'll have Paul Wheaton from Hermes.com on tomorrow You pull yourself up They keep bringing you down Are they gonna bail you out Or just run you around They said you should have a house The American way A dollar down A dollar a month You'll never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way